0: It may seem a little unusual that we're entering into one of the greatest periods of change in the life of our church, and yet I'm going to speak this morning from the scriptures about what doesn't change. If you've been in church life, you've seen this. I've seen it as a pastor over the years. Oftentimes, facilities define who the church is. In other words, You have certain types of facility and that demands a certain type of ministry, whether that ministry is relevant, whether that ministry reaches people, whether that ministry helps people, it doesn't. And you'll hear that conversation often and many times in churches, but we have this. And probably when we got that, it was important and it was relevant, but time has changed and it may not be in this moment. One of the things that has guided this process from the very beginning is the desire to remove limitations. And you hear us talk a lot about the limitations. You hear us, Christy talked about it, Josh mentioned it again, and I mentioned it repeatedly. A lot of the security issues related to the older buildings that we deal with now. A lot of the maintenance issues. We, we are relocating to remove those, those limitations, but it has been our heartbeat from the very beginning to not change who we are. Changing locations, changing facilities, and designing facilities in such a way that every part of the facility is multi-purpose and usable by any group, and the facility doesn't dictate what the ministry is. But even beyond programming, it is important to know that there are certain things that do not change in any set of circumstances. We call those our core values. You'll find them on the website under the vision page. It lists the four core values there. You find it on posters all around the church in different classrooms and hallways in different places. And this morning we're going to look at scripture out of Acts chapter two that helps us in a, in a very real sense put a picture or an image to how those core values work. And those core values do not change. Being on an entirely new campus, being on an entirely new piece of property with an entirely new facility does not change who we are. This is the great lesson of creation. This should be something every single believer in Christ understands fundamentally in our hearts and our lives. God created us sin corrupted us Jesus' forgiveness recreates us and the core of our identity is in christ not in our circumstances not in our culture not in the common belief or philosophy or idea of the age we don't change god designed us Culture did not design us. The government did not design us. The school systems did not design us. Our friends did not design us. Social media doesn't design us. We are at the root of our identity, followers of Jesus always and forever, and that's who we are. And so if it's true of us as individuals, we don't change. We are exactly who God created us to be. Then it makes sense that his church created by him, upon which he is, according to Scripture, the head, the ultimate leader of this church, of all churches, doesn't change fundamentally. So let's go to Acts chapter two. And let's look at these four elements that aren't going to change and don't change. And how they apply and how they work out and how they how they began established in the early fledgling Christian church. And the first one is one of the most exciting ones. And it is the issue of life change and we see that life change the the forgiveness and the new life that's in christ as peter wraps up his message in acts chapter 2 verse 37 he's explained everything to a primarily jewish audience at this point in time but the jewish heritage doesn't define the christian church and that will shift by the time we get to chapter 12 as gentiles become a part of the christian church But the heart of life change, the heart of the forgiveness and the new life in Christ is in Peter's message in verse 37, Acts chapter two, verse 37, when Luke is observing what's taking place and says, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, convicted. They understood the necessity for that forgiveness, for that life change. They understood life change had to happen. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? When God begins to speak to our hearts, we ask that question, then what do I do? How do I become a Christian? How do I follow Christ? For me, on the night I became a Christian, I, I didn't necessarily know who to ask, But the guys that had been sharing with me about Jesus and telling me about Jesus and having those conversations with me about the life change Jesus could give me, they were perceptive enough to hand me a little booklet that I could read and it would define and help me understand how God had designed me and had a plan for me and has loved me from the beginning of my life. How my sin had separated me from that love and from that plan and gotten me off track. How Jesus' death and resurrection would allow me to experience forgiveness and get back on track and be a part of the original James at the heart of who God created me to be, recreated in Jesus. And how all of that would bring a life change that would give me an assurance an assurance to know and and not doubt in any way that God had touched my life, changed my life, he had secured my life, that I was now in a personal relationship with Jesus. And life change began to happen. And they're pierced to the heart, they're convicted, they're ready to take action, and they ask, what should we do? And Peter explains to them, simple, repent, repent. Make that decision to trust Christ. Be baptized as the symbol and the recognition of that decision, each of you, and do this in the name of Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit as he comes and dwells and lives in us. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, be saved from the corrupt. That word can literally mean crooked or twisted generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them, to the church. Life change. Life change only happens when you step into a personal relationship with Jesus. That's the only way. We can follow all the steps and organizations and possibilities and all the great thought processes, but until Jesus is in our life, until Jesus is in our relationship, life change doesn't happen. And that doesn't change. Life change is the heartbeat of this church for 114 years. And after we break ground in November, life change will be the heartbeat of this church in year 115. And after we move into the facility in June of 2025, life change will be the heartbeat of this ministry in 2025, in year 116. And then down the line, as many of us grow, mature, and move to heaven, as others come into place and lead and minister and become the heartbeat of the church, it will still be the clarion song, the clarion message of this church. Life change, forgiveness, and new life is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. It doesn't change. The message hasn't shifted in over 2,000 years. In reality, it has not shifted since creation. You can find throughout all of the Old Testament references to and predictions about and information leading to that relationship with Jesus a relationship with the Father that Jesus has provided the pathway to. Many believed in its anticipation. Many now in our time and age believe in its fulfillment and we anticipate the final fulfillment of all of us being together in the presence of Jesus. Life change doesn't change. Biblical focus doesn't change for us. We are adamant about this. We are intentional about this. We are structured for this. Biblical focus doesn't change. In verse 42, Luke says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were performed through the apostles the early church in its fledgling moments. Now Luke is going to jump weeks at a time and sometimes months at a time in the book of Acts and clearly that's what's taking place. Clearly at the end of verse 41, 3,000 people have just believed in Jesus and have joined the disciples, and they've joined the 120 that were praying after Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection. That church is growing and more and more people are believing in Jesus and life changes happening on an everyday basis, but also, on an everyday basis, is the biblical focus of the church. They have committed themselves fully to the apostles' teaching. They don't have the history and the information. Luke is in the process of writing the book of Acts. They didn't have it to look at. And so they listened to the testimonies, and they listened to the teaching of those who were closest to Jesus during Jesus' ministry here on earth. And the church begins to develop. They were deeply involved in the fellowship and the gathering process of coming together. The breaking of bread in verse 42 probably refers to the celebration of the Lord's Supper. The very ordinance that Jesus committed to and challenged the church to do in remembrance of him. They were committed to prayer. They're, They're attending every single day of the week, teaching, fellowship, worship, and prayer because they're biblically focused and in any part of scripture it challenges us in these areas and we let it guide us and that worship is not absent this is not an intellectual challenge this is not an academic challenge this is the reality of learning and growing and maturing in that relationship because definitely the emotion was there everyone was filled with awe Many wonders and signs are being performed through the apostles. Every day they were seeing the amazing things that only God could do. And it was in its biblical context. They were learning out of the context of the Old Testament at this point. They were formulating and God was inspiring them to write the New Testament for us today. And that doesn't change. Changing our location, changing our facilities, doesn't change our biblical focus. It is the priority of this church. It has been for 114 years, and it's not going to change. And I can I can guarantee that, at least under this leadership and this administration, as long as we're here, it does, it's not going to change. In fact, everything is designed to extenuate it and make it easier. Make it easier to have more Bible studies at different times of the week. Make it easier to have childcare available so young adults can come and learn the scriptures and talk through the scriptures and talk through issues and concerns in their life and learn how to live with a biblical focus. Learn how when we gather to celebrate and worship and to enjoy our presence and to enjoy God's presence in that unique way he moves and works in our midst when we gather and to live our lives with the standards of scripture is so important, and it doesn't change. We will still open our Bibles. That has changed even in terms of methodology. Most days I open my Bible digitally. Matter of fact, I can honestly say to you, the only day I open a hardback Bible anymore is on Sundays. And that's because it's easier to hide my notes inside. I said, that's not totally true because I could go to the Bible app and the notes are already posted. They've been posted for you since Wednesday, so some of you could have. And I know at least one of our deacons goes every week as soon as we upload them and checks them and then sends me an email. Let me know if he thinks the message is going to be any good or not. (laughs) We're going to keep studying the Bible is our lifeline to understanding this new relationship with Jesus I mean think about it guys for just a second if your wife came with an owner's manual wouldn't it have been so much easier what Jesus does as well as the experiential process of getting to know him it's a relationship again life changes out of that relationship with him and so always Every moment, even when we get to heaven, we will be learning and understanding more and growing in that relationship. So we're committed to life change. We're committed to being biblically focused and we are committed to generous hearts. Expressed in a variety of ways, not just financially, obvious, and, and there's, there's no shame in it. We're in a season that's going to express it a lot in tangible giving of gifts, but our congregation committed to generous hearts. And when we established the core values for our church, generous hearts rose to the surface because we watched not just how people give generously with their resources, but with all resources, how they give their time. There are are people up here night and day, the vast majority of which never get paid for anything. The driving force of the church well, administered by its staff in that process of leading the church is the volunteer base. A couple hundred people this morning studied Scripture in classes taught by volunteer teachers. Classes that had coffee. And in most of our classes, because we value food, it's not a core value, but it's definitely something we value. And most of our classes this morning also had food, a minimum of donuts and kolaches, but possibly casseroles and other things available because people gave their time um, out of hospi- hospitality to do, th- to do that. You were greeted by greeters. Not a single one of them is paid to greet you. They do it because they love their church, they love one another, and they love meeting you. The church is generous in so many levels. And that's the way the early church was. In verse 44 it says, now all the believers were together. There was a unique unity to them. They were together and they held things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. I love the way, I don't always quote other scholars, but I but um, I love this When Chuck Swindoll, former president of Dallas Theological Seminary, said this, they lost their sense of personal entitlement. Wealth and possessions became a means of meeting the needs of fellow believers. Extraordinary generosity and unity People became more important to them than things or their own comfort. Generosity, generous hearts out of unity became the heartbeat of that first church. Many of them were losing jobs, they were losing employment, they were, they were in dire circumstances. In many cases, they had to separate out from their families. The, the prophecy of Jesus, that knowing him and being in relationship with him would possibly split you up, would put father and son, mother and daughter at enmity, was coming true in those first few months of the church. And the only way they could survive was by the corporate and cooperative generosity of the church. Over the years, that's grown, and it involves in so many ways. Our church generously gives over 10%, typically about 11 to 12% of all receipts to other ministries. Our church is a lead donor in all of the ministries here in the region of Tomball. On a regular basis, every month, whether we can pay the bills or not, we pay our missions and we give to those ministries. We do the same thing that scripture asks of an individual. Scripture doesn't ask the church to tithe or to give, but we do it because our lives were changed and we're biblically focused and it just makes sense to us that even the church as a cooperative group should be generous. Our deacons orchestrate funds to help multiple people through any number of circumstances in bad economies or in health circumstances or even in the loss and the death of a loved one and finances needed to help with just funeral services. Our deacons manage and orchestrate that and take care of that every week. Your gifts fund all of that. Our church has always been generous now our church like many churches rides cycles the most frequent question i'm getting right now about this entire process is if you've looked at any of our prayer updates which you have to subscribe to let me just pause parenthetically for a second we don't send out the prayer updates to just everybody when you join the church Mehmet joined the church this past week Mehmet's a full member of our church he uh, he'll start getting emails from us about things that are taking place the truth is Even as a guest he was getting emails about activities and things that were taking place information that's happening He'll continue to get that you have to sign up for the prayer updates You need to let us know we don't want to inundate and fill your Inbox with a whole bunch of emails that you're not interested in here's the other key Josh told you to fill out the connect card or go online to FBC Tombo connect to do that We need your birthday the most difficult comment i make every week josh keeps i I haven't decided yet if it's a promise or a threat i leaned over to steve again this morning josh keeps promising or threatening that if you turn in the connect card the pastor is going to call you i'm not sure which end of the spectrum that is for you knowing that i'm going to call you sometime this week but the most common question i have to ask guests is do you mind giving us your birthday because if you're 63 you don't need information about preschool Most of you. There's a few exceptions actually in this church. Um, You know, and if you're junior in high school, senior in high school, you're probably not real interested about 55 plus lunch this past week. So we target all of that specifically. That's just a little insert to understand. But if you look at the prayer list and you get the prayer updates, you see, especially this time of year, we're always a couple hundred thousand under giving In other words, we have a budget. Here's the problem, let me just give you a quick understanding of how our church functions. That is based on 12 equal months. That target budget number, is based on 12 equal months. The reality is, and none of our teams have ever quite figured out exactly the best way to do it. There's a variety of ways churches have handled it. We just live with it for the time being. The The difference is, giving doesn't come in 12 equal increments. And so yes, by August and September, our giving is significantly behind on the budget. That's because the demographic of our congregation gives primarily and oftentimes annually. And if you get to be my age and you start looking at doing those kind of things, transfers out of IRAs and things like that, you'll understand why that happens. Or if you're in a charitable fund through your company and you do, you, you release those funds annually. So over a third of our budget comes in in the month of December we hoard that and i and i'm using that word intentionally we've always we're always frugal and that's been a core value to us that's not a stated core value um but we want to be very wise with the gifts that come in we hoard all of that we don't go on a spending spree in january because all that money came in in december because we know we know in July and August and September's, which actually oftentimes are our most expensive month. Our utilities are the worst in those months, which I cannot tell you just from a strictly just almost cardinal standpoint, I will be so glad when we have one air conditioning system instead of 34 we spend all summer long you know it because all the, the last two Sundays have been the only comfortable Sundays in here it's been a hot and muggy all summer because we're dealing with old units that are very expensive we hoard all of that because we know our most expensive months are July August and September, and we know the least gifts are going to come in in July, August, and September. That's been a little bit different this year. I want to just compliment you. People have been giving steadily throughout the entire summer. We did not have a summer slump like we normally do, but nonetheless, we're behind, and honestly, we will be behind until December. And then December will come, and we will hoard all of that so that it takes us through next year. And so the reality that we're behind on the target of our giving is not a reality that defines our ability to give in this process. Because our people are very generous and our people are very giving and they have to do it. And that's that's why you have the things available to you, including a commitment card today, to look at and plan your giving in this process. But more than writing the check and more than going online and clicking the buttons to give, It's the heart that we're concerned about. We'll maintain that generosity. I love that phrase. The believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all. For most of us to give sacrificially in this process, we're going to have to come up with a plan. Now, I'll be honest. Carrie and I have been praying and our plan is is developing. And by November 12th, when we do a commitment, we'll turn that in and we'll be ready. And our plan is a hybrid. It's going to involve us doing some stuff with savings um, and, and investments and things like that. It's going to involve us making some changes in our personal budget to meet the goals we want to set and the giving we want to do. And it even involves uh, I in am liquidating some things and we are going to give the proceeds from those things that we're selling to the church, just like they did 2,000 years ago. It's partly because I know we can do more if we do that and partly just because there's a certain amount of enjoyment in living the way that God has described for us in the scriptures to live. Changed lives, biblical focus, generous hearts. And what probably drew you here, and is definitely what keeps most of us here, authentic relationships. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. And in this particular case, it is probably a reference to eating meals together. I told you the food would come in there somewhere. And I'm watching the time, so we're gonna get you to lunch on time today. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number, literally to the church, those who were being saved, which takes you right back to life change, authentic relationships. And our church, I know all of this probably sounds like bragging, but our church does that well. That's what sustains so many of us. We can be having a horrible week and then we can go to one of those luncheons or go to one of those dinners or come on Sunday morning and be with everybody and we know they're praying for us and it just lightens the load. Sundays are my favorite morning of the week. Not because they're necessarily easy. There's nothing easy about getting up early, getting your whole family organized, and um, saying goodbye to the cat, and getting up here by a certain time, especially if it's early in the morning, especially if you have kids. It's not necessarily easy to be here every Sunday. But I never regret whatever effort it took to be here because of the friends. Friends because of the relationships. God designed us socially. And we have varying degrees to that. I recognize that. So if you're an introvert, it doesn't mean something's wrong with your faith. If you're an extrovert, it doesn't mean something's wrong with your faith. It just means that's the way God designed you. All of us introverts and extroverts alike enjoy being together. The church is a social church. It is a place for authentic relationships. It's a place where we learn and we devote ourselves to meeting together and to worshiping and to being with one another, eating meals together, and we enjoy it with joyful and sincere hearts.